Well, it's good to see all of you. Uh, so Ted asked me uh, a few months ago if I would come and, uh, and teach uh, two weeks in a row. And so I'm going to be, um, we, we were talking about just kind of what God's been putting on our hearts. And uh, at Door of Hope, one of the things I've been really focusing on uh, is really what does it mean to be uh, the church? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? Uh, we live in an age in which Christians often uh, try to live out what I consider to be an oxymoron, something that is an impossibility based upon the testimony of Scripture, which is, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And I think that the problem with that is that uh, what we do is we reduce the church to an institution when the Scripture is very clear that the church is Jesus. (laughs) The church is the bride of Christ. We are his body. Uh, And as his body... Uh, it's really bad when we dismember ourselves. Uh, we need to reflect the reality of Christ, and the, and the way that we do that is by coming together. We can't say that we're a part of the universal church. Uh, that's like saying I'm a part of the universal brotherhood of man, uh, but rejecting that you actually have a physical father and mother. Uh, You have to be a part of the actual family before you can be a part of the universal family. Uh, You have to be a part of a local expression before you can be a part of the universal expression. We aren't saved into a vacuum. We're saved into a family. Uh, And and the scripture is, is... is filled that each letter in the New Testament is written to local churches, actual places where communities of believers that gather around the person of Jesus come together. And so what I want to talk with you about um, uh, today is uh, the church's responsibility to be a witness. And then next week, we're going to look at the church um, as the body of Christ. What does it mean to be members of his body? Not members like Costco membership, but members like an organic body. Uh, in which we're knit together in his love that his personhood can be expressed fully through us as a community of faith. Uh, So today I want to consider this beautiful topic of witness because witness is something that we need to uh, gather around as a community of faith. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, we have something really profound stated by Jesus himself right before uh, he ascended into the heavens. You remember what he tells his apostles, what he tells his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to receive my spirit and when the spirit comes upon you, it's going to empower you and it will empower you to do something very specific, to be a witness. Now, when I first got saved, I was, uh, I was one of those truth seekers. I became obsessed with understanding this thing that just completely radically turned my life upside down, but I didn't fully get it. I just knew that I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that I was a man in desperate need of a Savior. Uh, And that was about as much as I understood, and it was enough to cast myself uh, into into a dark place. And and that began a journey of trying to understand what this thing meant. And so when I first got saved, I started to read everything I could. I probably should have just stuck with the Bible for the first few years. But uh, uh, if I was to truly go the Calvary way, I would have. Uh, But that's not my temperament. And so I read everything I could get my hands on. And I got really into apologetics. Apologetics are great. I read Ravi Zacharias, 
the atheism, a shattered visage, and William Lane Craig, reasonable faith, and C.S. Lewis, a mere Christianity, and G.K. Chesterton, orthodoxy. And oh my gosh, my wife was not a believer. Uh, so it was a real blessing to her uh, when I decided to try out my argumentation, uh, my legal expertise on why it is that she should I was going to argue her right into the kingdom. What I almost did was argue myself out of a marriage uh, because the scripture is really clear. What does he say here? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my lawyers. Nobody even likes lawyers. If you're a lawyer, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not what we're called to be. We're not called to argue people into the kingdom of heaven. We don't save people. Jesus saves Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw people to myself. What we are called to be is witnesses. And what it means to be a witness is that that has a background in the courtroom. It implies the act of testifying. It, we, what we're called to be is ones who proclaim the earthly ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Now, here's the thing is that the witness of the church uh, is dependent upon the authenticity of the person of Christ being a part of that community. We aren't introducing people to an ideology. We're introducing people to the living Christ, to the person of Jesus who is with us. He said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of him. And that's why I want to talk about witness in the context of witness as a community, not as individuals, because one of the things that is, dis, I think, uh, deconstructed our understanding of the church from a biblical perspective is the reduction of Christianity to personal beliefism. It's about you and Jesus. When people say, and Portland is all about this, we love the privatization of our lives and including our faith. And so I have kids at my church, they'll be like, you're not going to believe it. I work at this coffee shop and I just found out after a year of working with this person that they're a believer as well. Isn't that amazing? I'm like, no, that's horrible. You worked with them for a year and you just now found out that they're a Christian? What's wrong with you? We're in a secret society. This isn't how we are called to live. What we are called to be are people that boldly proclaim the reality of Christ. But see, this is the issue that we have fallen into in today's world. We apologize for our Christianity. We apologize for the person of Christ. We have reduced Christianity to prescriptive living, five ways to have a better marriage, five ways to get ahead in life. The biggest selling book in Christendom over the last five years is Your Best Life Now, written by a man that doesn't even proclaim the cross. I would argue a minor heretic. And yet, this is the reality of what we're dealing with today is that the centrality, the foundation of the gospel has been lost. And with that has been lost our witness, which is the primary call of the church today. We are called to be a reflection of the living Christ that we might make him known. We lift up the person of Jesus that we might make him known. In Portland, this, this plays out in a, in a multitude of ways. And it's a little different here because the Inland Empire, let's face it. My wife and I were sitting out under the stars last night. And she goes, there's just something in the air here where she's like, I, it just, it's easy to love Jesus here. And she's like, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the simplicity of life here. It's, you're not bogged down with all the, the newest, coolest 
hipster realities, you know, that are, it, there's an oppressiveness in my city uh, that I think you find really, really fervently when you go like to Hollywood, uh, where the world's ways and the, and the, the culture, which is so, so permeates everything we do, it, there's an oppressiveness upon Christian testimony. And so often the Portland church gets accused of having very soft edges because we we, we, we're embarrassed by witness, and so what we do is we replace it with social justice. And then we love to quote guys like Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel. Does anyone know the saying? Use the words if, use words if necessary. That's the stupidest <laughs> statement ever. Yes, your life should preach the gospel, and how we live actually qualifies what we say. That's true. But the scripture is very clear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How shall they believe if there is no preacher to preach? In other words, I know lots of really amazing altruistic pagans. I know people that love to serve their community. Portland is communal in its living. We have like one of the highest homeless populations in the nation because we just, we invite it. We love, as a progressive city, the ways that we give ourselves to bettering our environment and caring for, caring for the down and out. There's lots of altruistic people. I, you're not going to save someone by mowing your neighbor's lawn. What we need to be is a people that recognize that humanity is always driven by, we talk about, what we love. And what we love as a church will define what we say. And I think that this is important for us to understand because bold proclamation cannot be replaced with weak suggestions. Christianity, one of the movements that happened over the last, really the last 10 years, it came to kind of a peak was the, uh, was a whole movement within the church which moved toward uh, questioning the faith raising tons of questions, poking at the foundations of orthodoxy. Uh, and that became this kind of in vogue thing with young churches, is, is how do we actually, how do we actually um, engage uh, young minds into Christian realities? Well, we do it by asking questions, questions upon questions. We're not called to raise questions, we're called to proclaim truth. And I think that there are questions, obviously, that naturally arise out of the gospel, but those questions should arise out of our strong and real witness to the reality of Jesus. And so what I want us to look at today um, is how do we regain our testimony? Billy Graham once said to Alan Redpath at a Billy Graham crusade in uh, Chicago in the 50s, uh, he said to Alan Redpath, who at the time was the pastor of Moody Bible Church uh, in downtown Chicago, he said, if the church actually did its job, my job would not be necessary. The rise of parachurch ministries like Navigators, Campus Crusade for Christ, all these things are wonderful. There was a desire, what, but they, they, were, they were the outcome of this belief by individuals that the church was not fulfilling her responsibility. And so a lot of those parachurch ministries actually developed out of a distrust of the church's ability to fulfill the commission, to be witnesses. But I don't believe that the answer is to neglect the very thing that Jesus said would be his medium. We don't throw away the bride. In fact, any man here would say that the way that you can bring wrath out of a man is to insult his bride. We have no place to, to be uh, standing in judgment like the accuser of the church 
The church, when it falls into the trappings of institutions, when it's derived by the sinfulness of man. And listen, many of you have come out of the brokenness of churches that have been blown up by the failures of men. I understand that. But that doesn't change the means by which Jesus calls us uh, to live as, as a saved community. And so what I want us to consider today is how do we actually function uh, as a witness? Now, when I first got saved, about two years into my faith, I was asked actually to go and share my testimony in downtown Seattle. And I'd been saved in Seattle. So I was, I mean, when I met Darcy, I was like raccoon eyeliner. I looked like David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. I mean, I, I wore fake eyelashes. I taught my wife how to wear eyeliner. I was, I, it was a gift, really. The, my, I was so masculine, I was comfortable with things that many of you men would not be comfortable doing, like wearing fake eyelashes. Um, I, I actually put a picture of myself in my 20s up on the screen at our church not that long ago um, with the full makeup on. And people literally like, were like, oh, like just gas, like, oh, that's horrible. And uh, I, thought I'd, I thought it was pretty cool at the time. But I remember I was asked to give this testimony. And in the city, that, that's where I lived as, a, as this intense, kind of out-of-control over-the-top, wannabe rock star. And I was so terrified. that The thought about, of talking about Jesus in an open setting was like the worst, like, I'm like, I can't think of a worse thing to do. And so I remember I was sitting in the, in the parking garage, uh, and, and there I was uh, sitting in the parking garage, and, I, and I'm, I began to pray, Lord Jesus, I love you. That's enough. Like, the gospel, we are saved by grace I do not have to do this to prove that I love you. This is ridiculous. It's not even, it's, 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 it's ethically questionable. Uh, I'm like, I don't want to do this. And so I, I decided at that moment to do something that all Christians should do, which is turn my Bible into a magic eight ball. And I, and I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip open the Bible and wherever I put my finger, that will be the answer. And I thought there's, so, there's got to be plenty of verses where you're like, I love you be free or something, you know, <laughs> go in peace. <laughs> um, so I flipped it open and this is lit. I'm not joking. This is the actual, I'm a man of hyperbole. This is not a moment of hyperbole. I flipped it open and I opened my eyes and this is the first line I read. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. And I shut my Bible and I'm like, Jesus, you win. You always do. <laughs> and I gave my testimony. And it was rough. And there were people that were taunting. But I, I realized in that moment that the fear of man can only be overcome when our love of God surpasses that fear. You know, I'm terrified to preach every week when I preach. I was sick this morning. I got up at 4 a.m., I was nervous to come here. I preach every week and I still get nervous. But my love of Jesus surpasses my fear of communicating the gospel. It's too important. It's too important. The love of Christ compels me. We are called to be witnesses. I want us to consider this as witnesses. I want to consider this one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 um, speaks four words, four words that for us as a community wield absolute authority. Four words. We preach 
Christ crucified. Those four words wield utter authority in our lives. We need to understand this. We preach Christ crucified. Paul could have said a lot of things. He could have said, I preach Christ crucified. And we often think of preaching, we don't think of it as a church thing. We think of it as a, as a person thing, an individual thing. But that's part of the problem with our, our lens. We look at things through the lens of our culture. We look at scripture through the lens of culture rather than looking at culture through the lens of scripture. We often are defining everything um, in, in our understanding of Christianity. We're, we're trying to define it in an individualistic base. You know the church fathers never use the word individual? The patristic fathers never use that word. Individual actually is who I am, the uniqueness of myself defined apart from others. The church fathers didn't say God is one God, three individuals. Said one God, what? Three persons. The difference between an individual and a person is an individual is one who is defined by his separateness from others. A person is one whose uniqueness is discovered through his relationship with others. The essence of the gospel is a restoration of relationship. To be made in the image of God means that we're made for relationship. God himself is a community within himself. The father is the father because of his relationship to the son. The son is the son because of his relationship to the father. The spirit is the spirit because of his relationship to the father and the son. It's interdependence upon one another. Our uniqueness, we are one body, many members. Our uniqueness is actually discovered in our intimacy, in our connection, in our giving of ourselves to one another because we have received the one who gave everything for us. And so these four words, we preach Christ crucified, begin with the first word, we, plurality. We means not I, but we. That the gospel, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in his book on preachers and preaching, that the gospel is most powerfully proclaimed when, the, when God's people are gathered together in a unique way around the person of Jesus, that if you even look at great evangelistic movements, look at the Crusades of Billy Graham, every person that, there's hundreds of thousands of people that would gather. What do you think the majority of the people were? Believers. Believers who brought non-believers. When God's people gather together, something powerful happens. Door of Hope does this thing called Church in the Park. And Church in the Park is, is this time where we go out into a public setting and we preach the gospel uh, as a ch- we, we don't pre- I don't go out by myself and yell at the pagans in Colonel Summers. Colonel Summers is like the hipster center of the universe. It's the weirdest, most immature place that I've ever been to anywhere in the world. Uh, so, I mean, when you go there, there's every, every Monday night in the summer, they have dodgeball and there's always this one guy who's always buck naked playing dodgeball. I don't know why he does it. I get mad every time I see him. I've seen him for like three years in a row. The guy, like, he loves to play naked. And we have the largest naked bike ride in, in the world. Then they ride by my house. I always, I always yell, kids, come outside and look what age does. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's profound, really. You're disturbed. You're like, I'm so glad I don't live there. Uh, but at this park, there's a, the, I remember one time I'm preaching, open-air preaching. What we do is I don't go out and just preach at the pagans. No one's going to listen. 
what we do is we gather together. In the first year we did it, we had over 200 people gather every week in this park. And to have 200 young adults in Portland that looks like the rest of Portland with Bibles, singing praises together, there's power in that. There's power in it. And yes, do people mock us? Yes, but we also had a lot of people come to know Christ, be introduced to the gospel, be introduced to the church community, to come and sit and listen because they couldn't even figure out what was going on. Because Portland's a truly post-Christian city where the majority of people that get saved at the church have never heard the gospel in their entire lives. My son's 15, going to Cleveland High School. He does not have one Christian friend at his high school. That's the reality of the city in which we live. Now that puts a daunting responsibility. If the primary task is to be witnesses, I can't do that by myself as a pastor. But the power of the gospel and the reason the gospel is even spread through Door of Hope isn't because of my ability to articulate the truth. It's based upon the authenticity of the community together. We're committed to this together. Now, I remember what it was like to live here in Temecula. I remember that it was easier to be a Christian. But that comes with its own problems. That comes with its own challenges where you take for granted the responsibility to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Where it's easy to become a private Christian because everyone already believes here. Like you tell someone you go to church and they're like, yeah, I go to another church down the street. And and we begin to buy into the false idea that everyone here must know Jesus. I promise you, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that Jesus wants to make himself known through this community and through other communities that are faithfully gathering around the gospel in this city. We is a plural word, which means that we have a responsibility together to make Christ known. Now, Paul doesn't just say we, he says this. He says, listen, the witness, it comes through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us. The Spirit witnesses to our hearts that we belong to God, that we're his children. And the outcome of that is that we preach. And I love this. Paul says that we do this thing called preaching together. Now, it's true that the church actually is gifted. There are people that are gifted to preach. Specifically, they're, they're occupational preachers, if you will, or even lay preachers. They, are, they have a unique ability to unpack the scriptures and to make known the realities of Jesus in ways that maybe go beyond what many or most of us can do. However, Paul is very careful to write that verse in 1 Corinthians. He says, we preach, which means if you look at the, at the Greek of the word, what does preaching mean? It's very similar to witness. Witness is to testify to the truth of something. We're not called to go out and argue people in. We're called to testify. Preaching actually takes it to a more personal level. Preaching is heralding. It's introducing people to someone. We're not opening up an empty ideology. We're not declaring uh, five ways to a better life, 10 ways to a better marriage. I mean, all those prescriptive realities, yes, are naturally flow out of the gospel. But when we get the center right, we need to understand that we preach means that we introduce people not to an idea, but to a person. Now, nothing brings about wrath upon my life from my wife like me forgetting to introduce her to someone that we are. My wife has the gift of wrath. And so when, um, when we're standing, I've only done this a few times because this is not good. If we're talking to a group of strangers and my wife's standing next to me and I don't introduce her to who I'm talking to, 
It's offensive. And why is it offensive? Because she's my wife. She's my spouse. She's the person that I am one flesh with. I am supposed to honor her, to cherish her, to guard her, to lift her up. That she is this gift to me. And to not introduce her to people I'm talking to is about the most disrespectful thing I could do. And it doesn't, it doesn't do me any good in our marriage. It, 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 and it definitely, it speaks. If I treated her like she's invisible, if I treated her like she wasn't there, what does that communicate to others about how I feel about her, that she's not that important to me? Now, some of you are like, oh man, I did that last week. Well, you better repent to your spouse. <laughs> I don't know why men tend to do it much more than women. Uh, I don't know what our problem is. Uh, but I think that this is the natural thing. It's easy to become forgetful. We can forget to remember. In fact, scripture again and again is calling us to remember. And nothing is more important in the believer's life and in the community's life. One of the reasons we need one another is that we remind each other on a weekly basis that our life is not to be built around our jobs, not to be built around our kids, not to be built around our dreams, our hopes, our retirement, that our lives are to be built around the person of Jesus. That's why we gather. And our responsibility is we herald, we introduce people to King Jesus. We are to make him known. And that's why Paul doesn't just say we preach, but he says we preach Christ. Not an idea, but a person. That we are actually introducing people to the person of Jesus. That Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there, what? In the midst of them. I will make myself known. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. I love this because the person of Jesus has to become the central thrust of our existence as a community. I I was thinking about this. We think that it's our responsibility to prove our faith to the world that is lost. Paul said the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he isn't saying that everyone out there is perishing. He's saying that those who will not receive will not receive. That's not our response. What we're doing is we're witnessing, we're introducing people to King Jesus, and then we're giving God the responsibility to do only what he can do. And God calls humanity, the lost to himself, and some will come and some will not. Our responsibility is not the results. Our responsibility is the authentic witness. And so this is why I always tell our people, we shouldn't be worried about whether people believe what we believe, but we should be worried about whether or not people believe that we believe what we believe. Nothing is more troubling than talking about someone you don't know. (laughs) Nothing is more falsifying than trying to sell something you don't believe in. I remember I worked at, uh, um, at uh, well, this is kind of funny. I went up to Alaska when I was 18 to work on a, on a crabbing boat in the Bering Sea in 1991. And it, that year, I think like 10 boats went down. It was like the worst winter Alaska had had in like 75 years. It's also the year they lost like 18 climbers on McKinley. Um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a bad year. But what I discovered when I got up there, um, my dad lined up this job for me is that I'm afraid of the ocean. So I, I instead did the most masculine thing possible and took a window display job at Nordstrom. <laughs> and I, I, I worked in window displays, but before I did that, I worked on the sales floor. And I was, people were like, you're such a good salesman uh, at, at the church. But if you had seen me at Nordstrom, you would not 
You would not believe that I'm a good salesman. I was the worst salesman. I actually got moved into window displays because I was such a bad salesman. And the reason I was a bad salesman is because I did not believe in the products I was selling. So like a guy would come in and he'd be like, tell me where the Fasenab shirts are. I'm like, you don't want that. Those are so boxy. They look blousey on you. You don't want to. And then people would be like, well, why would you say that to them? That's the, what we sell here. Like, but they're ugly. They look horrible. I don't want to sell that. That's horrible. And so I would just like sell things I didn't believe in and then people wouldn't buy it because they don't believe that I believe in it and therefore they're not interested in it. And I think that this is actually how we often are about the gospel. I'm like, that's why evangelism classes freak me out. Because it's like, you're given like these points. You get the four spiritual laws. I understand their helpfulness. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's important that we learn how to articulate what it is that we believe. But I think the most important thing is that people believe that you actually believe that this person, Jesus, that you're talking about is as real as you're declaring. That actually, I was a pretty good evangelist early on, not because of my robust understanding of the scriptures. It was not robust. It was actually very, very limited. But I knew who had saved me. And that was enough. Our testimony is powerful. We preach a person, and that person has to be real in our lives for, that, for the gospel to go forth with any sort of authority. I was watching A&E, the History Channel, and they were doing these uh, biographies, and I watched the Marilyn Monroe biography, and there was this really creepy man that was balding with stringy hair, and his face was kind of greasy, and he was overweight, and, he's like, and he was a Marilyn Monroe expert. And, I mean, his... Demeanor was creepy enough, but what was really creepy about his expertise and the person of Marilyn Monroe was one fundamental flaw in his ability to articulate all that we needed to know about Marilyn, and that was that he had never met her. Creepy. That just, turned, that just immediately made him even more creepy because he didn't know her. He is a man obsessed with a person who's dead, and his ability to articulate uh, all the facts about her life had this strange emptiness to it because he didn't know her. He could only speak about her from a very detached place and that did not make him a good witness to why we should care. In fact, if anything, I thought it was a, a, a flawed attempt at biography to just fill a space when I'm sure they could have found someone that knew her. And I think that this is the reality is that often the gospel falls flat from the lips of those who don't really know the Jesus that they say they believe in. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. And we need to actually, this is why Paul said, examine yourself. This is why Paul said to Timothy, he didn't say, take heed to the godliness of your people. He said, take heed to your own godliness. Because our relation, this is where personal relationship with Christ actually does matter. And not personal in the sense of private, but personal in the sense of relational. Is that the, the authenticity of the gospel requires the filling of the Holy Spirit. That we cannot proclaim with any sort of authority unless Christ's spirit dwells within us. Christ's spirit witnesses to our spirits before we can become witnesses. That's what Romans 8 tells us. So we preach Christ, a person. But I like that Paul adds something unique to the close. And this is where we'll close as a consideration of what it means to be a witnessing church, is that we preach Christ crucified. It's not enough to talk about the person of Jesus. In fact, there's a lot of talk about Jesus today. A lot of articles around who Jesus is. 
And what we need to recognize is that there are many people that declare a Jesus that's very different than the Jesus from the gospel. And the centrality of the Christian faith is not just simply the person of Jesus, but we cannot disconnect his person from what he did. And what Jesus did is that he did something fascinating. Jesus, God in the flesh, it's not just God identifying with our humanity. We preach Christ crucified means that the central thrust of the Christian faith is the cross. And people say, well, why not the resurrection? Because there is no necessity of resurrection unless someone first died. God died. And what does that actually tell us? Why does Paul say we preach Christ crucified? Paul was the most educated man probably the church has ever known. It, definitely out of the writers of the New Testament. His genius was, was absolutely evident in his writing. His knowledge base of Jewish law, his, his understanding of Greek philosophy, all of those things. He says, listen, all that, I've summed it up to this. I have chosen to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He says, this is the central affection, the central thrust of everything that I do. This is what my life is built around. And listen, church, this is what we as a community, we have no foundation. We are not the body of Christ unless Christ is the center of what we do. And so what we do is we preach the person of Christ, which is directly connected to what that person did. And Jesus didn't just enter into our human flesh. He did something even more profound. He didn't just enter into our humanity. He entered into our lowest point, our sin. What the gospel declares is that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus actually, the sinless son of God, took into himself the brokenness of human existence, and he made it his own. He knows us so well that he even under, people say, well, he was sinless, therefore he could never understand my sin. Sin is what I am. God better understand my sin or I can't worship a God because he couldn't truly understand me. Oh, Jesus understands it. He understands it so well that he was actually able to see it all the way through to its bitter end. He drank it down to the dregs. He took sin further than I can take it. He didn't sin, he became sin. That is a fundamental mystery that we will never be able to get our heads around, but it is so key to our understanding of why we preach Christ crucified because sin is, by its very nature, a rebellion against God's sovereign rule because sin is, by its very nature, a rejection of God's grace. Jesus Christ, we don't just preach the person of Jesus. We don't tell people about what an awesome teacher he was how he was a moral man, how he cared for the broken, how he cared for the lost. We're not preaching a social justice gospel. We are preaching a gospel of the cross because the cross shows us the incredible, outrageous love of God, that God's love is so vast that he who knew no sin would enter into our brokenness, that the judge became the judged on our behalf. Do you believe that in the depths of your being? That you owe your existence to King Jesus. We preach Christ crucified must be the central thrust of what the church is about and that we are not functioning as a church and we are not functioning as Christians unless our witness is around this person. And so when Assisi said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, what he was fighting against was the contradiction between life lived and words spoken. And so I come back to that statement to say 
that he expected there to be witness, but he said the witness is built upon the authenticity of life well lived. The only tangible evidence that we belong to Jesus and our witness begins in this place, John chapter 13, they will know you are my, what? Disciples by your love for one another. Not by the purity of your doctrine, not by the disciplines of your devotion. No, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says, I could manifest the gifts of the Spirit. I could speak in tongues. I could raise people from the dead. But if I have not love, it means nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing. And so for us, our witness is driven by a, by a care and a concern for one another as we build our lives around Jesus Christ, the living Christ, and the, and the work of Christ because we only can come around him because of what he did for us. Our entrance into his world is because of his full entrance into ours. And so we come before our king. As a church, we are called to be witnesses to the living Christ. We talk about what we're excited about. Are you excited about Jesus? I want us to all be like Will Ferrell and Elf, okay? You know, at the end of the movie, when he like busts into his father's office and he's like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows. That's what we need to be like. I will be a fool for Christ. Do we actually look at the world with the, with the eyes of Jesus? Do we want to make him known? Is he the central thrust of your existence? Jesus is not interested in just being your savior. He needs to be your Lord. He is your Lord, whether you want to recognize him as that or not. Every knee will bow before him one day. So this is the call. The church is a witnessing church, first and foremost. And we don't witness to an ideology because we're not an institution. We're the body of Christ and we are on this world to make Christ seen by what we do, by what we say, which is all wrapped up in how well we love. Amen?